Brazil is set to hold an auction on 5G frequencies in the coming years, but they're being put under pressure by the United States to remove the Chinese company Huawei from the dispute. Why? Well, it's because the US suspects the Chinese government of installing backdoors into Huawei's technology for espionage purposes. But new revelations from the Washington Post show that the United States have been doing the same thing for decades, particularly during one of the most brutal periods of recent South American history. My name is Ewan Marshall, editor of the Brazilian Report, and standing in for editor-in-chief, Gustavo Ribeiro, and this is Explaining Brazil. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Greg Miller, national security reporter of the Washington Post, who is here to talk about his latest revelations linking the US Central Intelligence Agency and military dictatorships in Latin America. Greg, to start us off, just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with it, could you give us a brief outline of what was Operation Condor? Yeah, so uh, I want to make sure that your listeners know that I am not an ex- an expert on this history, but but I can, I think, explain Operation Condor, uh, which was a, a a program put together by the military dictatorships of Latin America in the late 1970s to help one another track down uh, the the their own sort of perceived enemies. So. I'm sure that many of your listeners will be aware that this was a very turbulent period in Latin American history and that there was a lot of violence and many people were killed in the late 70s and early 80s. Operation Condor was coming in the middle of this and it involved um, many people were trying to escape across borders. These governments, five or six countries, decided to team up uh, to help one another track down the uh, who they regarded as their own internal enemies. And these internal enemies were often left-wing sympathizers, communists, socialists, or just those who were opposed to the right-wing authoritarian governments. So this week, you published a story in the Washington Post about the involvement of the CIA in Latin American intelligence during Operation Condor. Now, the story revolves around a Swiss company called Crypto AG, First of all, could you tell us what Crypto AG was and what services they were providing to these military regimes? Sure. So Crypto AG was a company that was based in Switzerland uh, for more than half a century. Uh, The building is still there today. In fact, I was there just a a couple weeks ago walking around outside of it. Um, It was a company that made encryption devices for countries, governments all over the world. Uh, And these ranged from early in its history, they were very simple. They were mechanical devices made out of metal gears, and some of them were even hand-powered. But over time, the technology changed and they became uh, electronic and based on software and silicon chips. But it was basically equipment that let governments scramble or encrypt their most sensitive communications. So when a government is communicating with its embassies around the world, with its spy agencies, with its military leadership, you don't want your enemies intercepting and listening or reading those communications. Crypto was the world's biggest company for making machines that could help you keep that stuff secret. But it doesn't stop there, does it? 
who was behind crypto and what was being done with this encryption technology? Right. So, I mean, this is the the huge part of the story about crypto is that, you know, so all of these governments around the world, more than 120 countries, including many in Latin America, bought these devices for years and years and years, trusted this company. What they didn't know was that for most of its history, it was secretly owned by the CIA with uh, in a partnership with West German intelligence and that U.S. intelligence agencies were rigging these devices so that U.S. spies could read all of the messages that were being sent through these machines. And what kind of things did they come across? So we don't have a comprehensive list of that. It's hard to get. I mean, it's most of the world, short of a few important countries, were using these devices. And this program was important for U.S. intelligence for nearly a half a century. Um, but some of the examples that show up in the documents we have make clear that the United States, that uh, among the customers were Iran. Uh, and so the United States was able to listen to all the Iranian communications during the hostage crisis and other, and other tensions with Iran. Egypt was a customer. Saudi Arabia was a customer. When the United States needed, was engaged in a manhunt trying to find Manuel Noriega in Panama, they found him because he was hiding at the, the Vatican embassy in Panama. The Vatican was using these crypto machines. And so the United States could listen to the Vatican's communications and knew that Noriega was taking cover there. Uh, I mean, there are many other examples. In the 1980s, when Libya bombed a disco in Berlin trying to kill American soldiers there, uh, the U.S. figured that out because Libya was using crypto machines and America was listening to their messages. Is this all only coming out now, or were the CIA's backdoors ever found out by any of its clients? Yeah, so there were always suspicions about this company, and it's interesting. Um, so Argentina, in particular, became very suspicious. Argentina was a big victim of this and a very important target for the United States. Argentina used crypto devices for years. The United States listened to Argentina's communications during the Falklands War and shared all of that intelligence with the British. Uh, and so Argentina became quite suspicious and asked the company to come down and explain about some problems that Argentina had discovered in these devices. And so uh, these company executives come there and they try to explain this to – they try to lie to the – to the Argentina government and say, look, you're wrong. These devices are working. There's no problem here. Don't worry about it. Uh, and, you know, and one of the more fascinating but also almost humorous moments in these documents comes when Argentina says, well, we want you to, we don't believe you. We want you to fix this and we'll be okay. We'll continue buying these devices if you fix this, but we don't want you to tell Chile or any other governments because we want to be able to spy on them and we and they don't know about this vulnerability that we've found. And what about Brazil? Do we have proof that the CIA were spying on their dictatorship too? Yes, almost all of Latin America was using crypto machines. And as a result, almost every country in Latin America was exposed to U.S. intelligence as a result. And so Brazil is specifically named in the documents, uh, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, uh, Mexico. I mean, it's hard to come up with a country that is not named in these documents. So the documents don't have a lot of detail about certain countries and what was learned from them. And Brazil is one of them. So it's not 
exactly clear, you know, what what advantage the United States got from from this. Uh, but uh, I mean, you can look at the period of history and what's happening in Brazil and all of these other countries, and you can easily imagine how helpful this was to the United States. So these facts began around 40 to 50 years ago. So how exactly did you come across this information and how were you able to piece this story together? This is a reporting partnership with um, with ZDF, the German broadcaster, and with uh, a Swiss television company as well, because this company is based in Switzerland. Uh, and we have spent months, uh, you know, I can't tell you exactly how this group uh, came into possession of these documents, but, you know, what all of our stories are based on are secret histories written by the CIA about this program and by German intelligence about this program. And so... Those documents tell us almost everything about these, this operation from the beginning. They don't tell us exactly how it ended. So we did have to spend a lot of reporting time trying to figure that out on our own. And even though this is, uh, as, you, as you say, an, an historical um, operation or program, it only ends in 2018. The CIA still owned this company two years ago, was still using it to get intelligence on governments around the world until very recently. One interesting thing about these revelations is that here in Brazil, the country is being put under pressure by the United States not to do business with the Chinese company Huawei because they're claiming that there's a chance the Chinese government will be able to exploit their equipment for espionage purposes. So in light of your revelations about the CIA, is the US's attitude a bit rich? Or maybe it's more of a case of, you know, it takes a spy to know a spy. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's both aspects of it. I mean, there is a great deal of hypocrisy here, of course. Don't, don't you dare buy this Chinese equipment because it's pen- because it's likely penetrated, it's likely compromised by the Chinese government. But the, I mean, the United States may have a point here, too. I mean, for years and years, the United U.S. officials and German officials and crypto AG executives, they spoke, uh, they, they insisted that all of the suspicions about crypto were just rumors. They were baseless. It wasn't true. You don't have to worry. But now we know that they weren't rumors. It was all accurate. I mean, uh, and now we're, we listen to other companies, including Huawei or Kaspersky, the Russian company, where the Russian government and the Chinese government insist that they have nothing to do with these devices. But that's what the governments were saying about crypto for years. I mean, I just think that uh, the, the crypto history is so, is so important to us in part because it tells us a lot about how intelligence agencies not only worked then, but still work and why there is there why these suspicions about Huawei exist. Greg, thanks for speaking to us. Thanks, I appreciate it. After the break, dodging encryption tools weren't the only form of CIA involvement during Operation Condor, and we spoke to an expert to find out more. Hi, I am Paulo Sotero, director of the Brazil Institute at the Wilson Center, a renowned think tank based in Washington and a partner of the Brazilian Report. The Brazilian Report is a valuable partner of the Brazil Institute. The report's content, shared in our website, is well-researched, comprehensive and clearly presented. 
It deals with complex problems of public policy that challenges Brazil to add quality to its economy and society. Francesca Lessa is a researcher at Oxford University and is conducting a three-year project to study accountability for Operation Condor's transnational crimes in South America. Francesca, in the first half of our programme, we we heard a bit about Operation Condor. Uh, Do you think you could help us explain what exactly was the political context in South America at the time of Operation Condor, and who were these internal enemies that the dictatorships were trying to fight? So, uh, basically, um, since the 1960s, we had uh, military dictatorships in um, Paraguay, in Brazil, in Chile, in Uruguay, in Argentina. So it's a homogeneous situation in a sense. This was, of course, uh, the time of the Cold War and the uh, geopolitical context of the confrontation against communist and uh, capitalist regimes. And especially in South America, the um, so-called internal enemies that these military dictatorships were set on fighting were left-wing political parties, so communist parties, uh, socialist parties, anarchist groups, but also uh, left-wing intellectuals, uh, members of student movements, uh, the trade unions, and of course, in some cases, also armed uh, guerrilla groups that existed across the region. And so, Francesca, was it ever really credible to suggest that South America could have become communist at that time? Or was it more of like a like a scare tactic to kind of keep the military in power? It was, um, I guess, a scare tactic, but there had been also um, episodes and specific cases in which um, we saw countries in uh, Latin America going communist. Of course, uh, the clearest example that we can all think of is the revolution in Cuba in 1959, which, of course, was especially um, a cause for concern for the U.S. because one of the closest, uh, well, geographically closest countries to the U.S. had indeed gone uh, communist. And so, of course, the specter of other Cubas happening in South America was one of the uh, top policy priorities for the U.S. And another case that was also concerning for the U.S. was Chile, uh, with the election of uh, Salvador Allende in the early 1970s, and the specific efforts that the U.S. government conducted in Um, as it has been proven by now, destabilizing uh, Chile, uh, especially on the economic side, uh, and eventually generating the conditions that led to the military coup in September of 1973 and the overthrow of Allende by the Pinochet dictatorship. Yeah, because earlier in this show we were discussing some new revelations that the CIA had sold some encryptment equipment to some of South America's dictatorships, which actually allowed the US to spy on their communications. 
But, you know, as you've mentioned there, with the CIA having created the conditions, as you put it, for uh, Allende being overthrown, that wasn't the full extent of their involvement in South America. Just how, how deep did their involvement in these military dictatorships go? So this uh, news that you mentioned, I guess it's one of the latest uh, revelations on these matters. But of course, U.S. involvement was uh, not limiting to spying uh, what these countries were uh, going through. The involvement of the U.S. of the U.S. all across uh, Latin America can be seen at least in three respects. As I mentioned, ideologically, uh, the U.S. was the source of the national security doctrine and this ideology that placed national security as one of the top uh, priorities and um, as the most important one that trumped all other concerns, including the respect of human rights and basic freedoms of the populations. Um, secondly, we know that uh, the U.S. also provided uh, training for uh, many of the members of the armed forces of all of the countries in South America. It's been demonstrated uh, since a long time that hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, Latin American uh, military officers received training in the U.S. and especially in the School of the Americas in so-called uh, counterinsurgency techniques in tackling the threat of uh, armed uh, guerrillas. And also the U.S. provided economic support uh, through uh, military assistance uh, to all of these countries. Uh, one case that I was uh, recently working on uh, related to Uruguay, and I found quite uh, some striking data mentioning that uh, between the 1950s and the 1970s, the U.S. had pro provided $60 million worth of military training to Uruguay at the time of the Cold War. Francesca, if we're just talking about the South American nations themselves without necessarily the involvement of the U.S., so this like transnational cooperation between these dictatorships... Are there any other like parallels in other countries or any times in history where this has happened before, something of this magnitude? I think there were uh, some prior cases, if I'm not mistaken. There was um, a so-called Operation Phoenix uh, led by the U.S. Um, in Southeast Asia, but it's not an operation that I know too well. I've just um, heard about it <laughs> being mentioned as one of the sort of precursors uh, to Operation Condor. Um, most definitely, <laughs> we have seen some uh, type of collaborations between countries, which is quite similar to Operation Condor during the so-called War of Terror post-2001, in which we've seen uh, countries cooperating in the uh, clandestine renditions of suspected uh, terrorists and also uh, their torture in so-called uh, black sites. 
And also, when we talk about Operation Condor, a lot of people think that most of the effects were seen in countries like Argentina, for example, where the you know the military dictatorship started much later than it did here in Brazil when it started in '64. So, what exactly was like Brazil's role in the Operation Condor? How big of a role did it have? Um, it's quite interesting that you are asking this question because um, it's an important issue that hasn't been studied um, very significantly. Uh, and by this, I mean the role of Brazil in Operation Condor. Um, I was doing some research in uh, Porto Alegre a few years ago, and I was there working with the uh, NGO, uh, which is called Human Rights and Justice Movement. And uh, there they were showing me very interesting archival uh, documents um, pointing to the fact that uh, some of the earliest victims of Operation Condor, even if it wasn't called with that uh, specific name in the early 70s, were actually uh, Brazilian citizens that were in exile in Uruguay and in Argentina, and they were uh, captured by um, Argentine authorities in close collaboration with Brazilian uh, authorities, and they were uh, returned uh, to Brazil, where they suffered uh, torture and uh, political imprisonment, and also in some cases they were victims of disappearances. And these uh, three cases that I have in mind uh, date back to the uh, to the year 1970 and 1973. So these cases could be seen as really the closest uh, predecessor uh, to Operation Condor. But in a sense, they are part of the same process because uh, this practice of uh, coordinating actions in uh, targeting specific political exiles um, is part of the same trend. So although the name Operation Condor appears in late 1975, I would definitely argue that these earlier cases of the Brazilian exiles were already part of those same activities of uh, transnational repression. And so, as you mentioned, it's not, perhaps there is not a set time that Operation Condor starts and, and ends, but do you think, there is there any way to give us a sort of an idea, like maybe in numbers or figures, of exactly what was the magnitude of this operation and like the brutality that it caused? Um, I've been, um, as part of my research that I've been doing on Operation Condor, I've been building a database uh, trying to map uh, a number of cases relating to Operation Condor in its core period of activities that goes from late uh, 1975 to the early 1980s. But as I mentioned, I adopt a sort of a bigger lens because I think that Operation Condor uh, built upon the existing practices from the early 1970s. So I look at the whole uh, decade of the 1970s and these instances of transnational repression. And so far, I was able to 
collect information about uh, 603 victims of Operation Condor or transnational repression, if we want to use this uh, slightly broader term. Francesca, thank you very much for speaking to us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast was written and edited by me, Ewan Marshall, while it was produced and sound engineered by Gustavo Ribeiro. If you like this podcast, rate us on any form you might be listening to Explaining Brazil. It's really important for us because it does help other people find out about our show. But the best way to support Explaining Brazil is to subscribe to The Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic company behind this podcast. Every day we have new content about Brazilian politics, finance and society. We've also got exclusive newsletter services if you want to be briefed about what's going on in Brazil before starting your day. Subscribe now for our free trial and take a look at our content for seven days. And it's really free, you don't have to submit any credit card information whatsoever. So go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Brazilian Report. And that's all for now. We'll see you next week. 